Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I'm so glad you're with us for this episode. Vaccine mandates and passports. All over the globe, from Vienna to LA, countries, cities, towns that not long ago convinced their population that the coronavirus problem was just about solved are now imposing new restrictions that sound a lot like the old ones. Of course, one of the most contentious is the vaccine mandate. Requiring people to get vaccinations, or jabs as they're called over here in England, has brought fierce pushback. It's certainly an issue with two sides. On the one hand, the scientific and medical communities argue that the vaccine is the best way to fight COVID-19 in all its variants. Much of the fierce debate around mandates is now focused on the new Omicron variant, which we talked about last episode. Recent studies show hospitals around the world are full of unvaccinated people. Yet here's the rub. Studies are showing that mandates tend to harden the attitudes of those opposed to them. In other words, you may get some people who are hesitant to get the shot, but among hardcore anti-vaxxers, mandates will fall on deaf ears. The flip side of the argument goes something like this. Mandating vaccines amounts to taking away people's freedom of choice. Making a person's employment contingent on being vaccinated amounts to coercion. So too does making vaccination necessary for admittance to sporting events, bars, and other activities. So it comes down to health versus personal freedom. Add to this the open question as to whether having the virus provides immunity equal to that of a vaccine, and you have an issue that galvanizes people on both sides. Yet before we go any further, we do need to say this. Many people around the world don't have the luxury of rejecting the vaccine. They can't get a shot even if they wanted to. I said last episode, Sub-Saharan Africa has a vaccination rate of 7%. 7%. Folks there can't argue about personal freedom. Folks in Botswana or the Sudan or other places on the continent can't go back and forth about the choice. Because right now their choice is to go unvaccinated. In other words, they don't really have a choice one way or the other. Which is to say this debate is almost the exclusive province of wealthy nations. That's right, wealthy nations. Austria, Germany, the United States, the UK. These are all places with the resources necessary to vaccinate everybody. And now they're looking to penalize people who refuse. Keep that in mind because it's not uh, an insignificant issue within the larger vaccination universe. Los Angeles, the second largest school district in the United States, just fired almost 500 people who missed a deadline to get vaccinated. School children over the age of 12 who don't get the shot will be forced into online learning. 
Tough but fair? A lot of parents don't think so. Taking the macro view once again, you have to take into account the occasional disconnect between the scientific community and the politicians that they advise. In the UK, the same political class who celebrated Freedom Day back in July are now being told even their new restrictions may not be enough and tougher ones are needed. And this is coming just under a week, or just over, I should say, a week before Christmas. Where does this leave the public? Out of the loop, as usual. Sad to say, the public seems to be thoroughly confused. Now, travel as I do between where I live in Brighton and London on the train on public transport, where masks are supposed to be mandatory, you see masks on people probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 70% of the time. Others just apparently aren't buying it for whatever reason. Maybe some of them are exempt. That is a possibility. Not, however, a certainty. In Germany, where mandates are likely but not certain yet, a recent poll shows 69% of those surveyed are in favor of vaccine mandates. One thing is for sure though, the imposition of mandates and passports, no matter where they happen, will stir up loud opposition as it already has, which is then amplified by media to imply a larger portion of the population than actually exists oppose the mandates. So how does one navigate these conflicting positions for and against vaccine mandates and passports? My initial reaction is that the issue of freedom is a non-issue. I have never believed that people's freedom should impinge on public health and safety. Not only that, some of the same people who scream about freedom from vaccines are the same ones who have no problem with taking a woman's basic freedom to control her own body. Leaving that aside, because I know that's a nuclear argument, I think the mitigating factor in opposing vaccine mandates and passports has to do not with freedom, but with efficacy. If, and this hasn't been proven, catching and surviving COVID means a person has natural immunity that you'd normally get with a shot, perhaps exemptions could or should be in order. That is, however, a big perhaps. I get a sense the protests that have marked mandate impositions in other countries and in LA are not going away anytime soon. What many people want from their officials, vaccinated or not, is transparency and consistency. Right now, the census politicians in particular are playing whack-a-mole with people's lives. Here in England, revelations that the Prime Minister and some of his staff may have knowingly violated COVID rules a year ago has stirred up a hornet's nest of distrust that may be very tough to overcome and should never have happened in the first place. In the states, varying rules from state to state, municipality to municipality, are making any type of national consensus almost impossible. Complicating matters is the simple fact that not a great deal is known about the Omicron variant, except that it is highly transmissible. 
if the medical and scientific communities are in the dark, what chance does the public have to make informed choices on this? That having been said, I think a logical solution would be to have vaccine mandates and or proof of a negative lateral flow test become a standard for admission to hospitality venues, retail shops, supermarkets, and other indoor spaces, as well as sporting events. It's not perfect, but hey, we live in imperfect times. Up next, PowerPoints and debunked conspiracies. Do they now lead to the former guy's chief of staff? That is, former chief of staff. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. The January 6th House Committee, tasked with looking into the run-up and circumstances around the insurrection on that day, has in its possession a 38-page PowerPoint document that is, in a word, explosive. It's reportedly filled with wild, debunked conspiracy theories, as well as a recommendation that Trump declare a national emergency to delay certification of last year's election. This found its way to the desk of Trump's former and final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The nation's emergency, the national emergency proposal that is, was only one part of the PowerPoint. Also included was a claim that China and Venezuela had somehow grabbed control of the voting machine infrastructure in a majority of U.S. states. Sound off the wall? It is. These claims have already been completely and utterly debunked. And to be fair to Meadows, he turned over the PowerPoint. Give him credit for this. Give credit where credit is due. He turned it over to the January 6th committee himself. He says he never acted on any of the recommendations. All right, fair enough. Yet the presentation opens yet another window into the desperation of those in and around Trump to keep him in power. Mind you, this was on the run-up to the January 6th insurrection, which is why it's relevant to the committee. Seems no one knows the exact source of the document, but a retired Army colonel named Philip Waldron admits circulating it to Trump allies, several of whom were in the Congress. While Meadows says he never worked with Waldron, apparently Rudy Giuliani, you remember him, Rudy Giuliani did. All this shows just how close the country was to experiencing sabotage against American democracy. And this was before the Capitol insurrection. Before the insurrection. There are those who should know better trying to make the American people believe that there was some nobility in the storming of the Capitol. I'll repeat, they know better. They make themselves foolish. And I mean really foolish. I hadn't heard about any single validated conspiracy theory about last year's election. They're kind of fellow travelers, these folks, with those who argue the Civil War was about states' rights and not about slavery. It's indeed pitiful that people claim without a scintilla of evidence 
that Trump somehow won the election. Now, mind you, for those who have forgotten, the election was a year ago, over a year ago now, and it still won't die, these conspiracy theories. Now, one reason why they may not die may be having to do with money. Believe it or not, people fundraise by the pursuit of these claims, including Trump himself. I've reflected in previous episodes about why all this doesn't go away, why people continue to believe complete falsehoods. I think it's the same reason many people believe falsehoods about coronavirus and vaccines. It is truly sad to contemplate, but disinformation works. While we're at it, don't think that Mark Meadows turning over the PowerPoint and other documents are acts of charity. The January 6th committee is moving forward with an attempt to hold him in contempt of Congress. He, on the other hand, is trying to sue to stop the committee's subpoenas. And the wheels just keep on turning. While we're on the subject of conspiracy theories, have you heard about birds aren't real? It, too, is a conspiracy theory. And I'm just finding out about it, strangely enough. Uh, But it is a conspiracy theory with a bit of a difference. It's apparently a Gen Z phenomenon based on the premise that birds are not, in fact, real, but drone replicas installed by the government to spy on Americans. It's apparently really caught on. Last month, adherents even protested at, at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco to get them to change their logo. If it sounds a bit like QAnon and other social media spread theories, there's one big difference. The people who started Birds Aren't Real are actually poking fun at misinformation. Sounds like a great idea to me. One adherent quoted in the Times says, quote, my favorite way of describing the organization is fighting lunacy with lunacy. The creator of the parody is Peter McIndoe, who created Birds Aren't Real way back in 2017, four years ago. For a good period of time, he drew followers by telling them it was serious. Now that he's taken it out of the closet, he's certainly given me, and maybe other people that have read this story, a little bit of food for thought. Aside from straight-up misinformation, people on social media get snookered into a bunch of different things, including scams where they lose a good deal of money by divulging personal information to people they thought were legitimate. The people most affected by the rabbit hole, I believe, are the Z generation, who are being subject to nonsense, foolishness, and misinformation on an epic scale. You know, when I was young, this stuff didn't happen. We would be occasionally fed some misinformation, usually by politicians, to somehow goose their ratings or whatever, boost their poll numbers, get them elected to office, etc., etc., etc. But nothing like what's going on now. If birds aren't real is a way to push back against this rabbit hole of misinformation that young people are being sucked into. You know, young people are catching it on the chin on so many levels. 
they've had the flower of their young adulthood snatched from them by coronavirus. And they've also been subject to this onslaught of misinformation without a great deal of information about how to sort it out. If birds aren't real or is a way to push back against this, I have to say, I'm all for it. And finally, why can't President Joe Biden convince Americans the economy is doing well? Is it messaging or is it something more? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to this episode of The Intersection. So why is President Joe Biden having so much trouble getting the nation to see the economic recovery that he says he is overseeing? And, you know, on some levels, the numbers do bear him out. On this, however, he can't get arrested. His poll numbers remain low, and there seems to be a disconnect between his boosterism and how Americans actually feel. On the economy, the polls tell us people are concerned more about inflation than any other single factor, even a low unemployment rate. Now, if the unemployment rate was abnormally high, people would certainly be concerned with that. But they're not giving Biden any slack on having, in essence, a 4.2% unemployment rate. Very low. Low enough to be very close, very, very close to full employment. It doesn't help that employment figures, as opposed to unemployment figures, seem to yo-yo between good and well below expectations. However, the one economic indicator that people feel like someone is lifting their wallet is the price of gas. Ironically, it's the one Biden has the least ability to affect. Other inflationary factors, like the price of consumer goods, are eroding the public's sense of well-being. This does not bode well, not just for the president, but for members of Congress in the upcoming midterm elections. Biden's economic team seems to have underestimated the persistence of price increases, preferring to put a happy face on the economy that many people in the American public simply do not see. The president's team also seemed to think the nation's mood will brighten when people see the pandemic is truly in the rearview mirror. That could be some distance away with the emergence of Omicron. On the positive side, jobs seem to be plentiful and wages are rising. But if inflation eats up the extra money, then what? It will be interesting to see how the public spends this holiday season. The year-over-year spend is almost certain to be positive, but that's because last year was so god-awful. The real question is how much better it will be than pre-pandemic levels. Finally, the president and his economic team need to be realistic about where the nation's mood is right now and speak directly to it. Acknowledge that prices are going up and let people know what he's prepared to do about it. He, of course, being President Biden. 
It's all about reconnecting with the public that brung you to the dance. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well. <laughs>